I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Jingle, jingle. In real life right now, it is the week before Christmas. Does thinking about that <laughs> make you feel nervous? It do. In podcasting <laughs> land, it's not quite that close, but it's like pretty close still. It's just like, what, two weeks away? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like that cat, you just put it like, what is it? You put the something shrimp or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh, JJ. Well, um, I'm at least in the Christmas spirit, I guess. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm trying. What we're going to do today for our first really of two Christmas episodes, one today and one that'll air next Wednesday, a couple days after Christmas, we're going to present to you today the 12 days of Christmas of the veterinary ER. Now, as part of this, we had a long discussion about whether there would be singing or not. <laughs> And I think where we've landed is that there's going to be a small amount of singing, but they were going to give a disclaimer, which is this. JJ has permanent vocal cord damage from her respiratory illness last year, and I have been throughout my life accused of being tone deaf. And so that is the situation <laughs> that you are willingly participating in if you continue listening past this point. So what we're going to do is we are going to say the the day of Christmas and the thing that we were given <laughs> by the veterinary ER, and then we're going to say some interesting facts about that thing. Some of the things that I have are uh, newer studies or updates. Some of the things that we have are just going to talk about like our previous experiences. We're going to keep it short and light, but still, there's a lot of important info packed into this episode. So I yes. hope you enjoy it. Because all of these things are going to happen to these poor ER folks. That is true. <laughs> Every single one of them. That's true. And probably five of each. Do you have anything to add? Only that I don't think you're tone deaf. Okay. Um, I appreciate that. I, I agree. I think that I just uh, have a deep voice comparatively. I cannot hit high notes very well. That's fine. At all. Unless I'm in a falsetto. Everybody's given a range in their life. That's right. I have the range of a male R&B singer, roughly. You, it's. I think I'm a contralto. Is that how you say it? Whatever the thing below alto is, is where my voice is. Yeah, I, I, my experience is, before. is band nerd. I, I don't know singing. Look, I wanted to be a performer so bad. I can't even tell you the degree to which I wanted to participate in like community musical theater. But I was told my whole life like that I couldn't sing. So like it was like, oh, you can't try out. But now I'm like, oh, I could have tried out for men's roles this whole time. Mm -hmm. That is some bullshit. You still can well, so I've done a lot of research about lower female voices, and I don't remember the exact name, but, but people with my vocal range are known for playing bitches and breaches. <laughs> so you either play evil characters or you play male characters. <laughs> um, I mean, you might could get some some catharsis out of being an evil character. 
I hear, Absolutely. I hear people can get, get some 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 things out. <laughs> things okay. that they're not allowed to normally do or say. You get free reign if you're gonna be playing a biatch. Well, we will try to avoid that energy for the twelve days of Christmas at the ER, I guess. Yeah, or maybe not. You know. I mean we could really go either way on that. Depends on what your, the day gives you. And your personal survival strategies. Mm-hmm. All right, JJ, are you ready? For the first one? Oh, I think so. Okay, guys, here we go. On the first day of Christmas, the ER gave to me a tabby cat that that cannot pee. That was beautiful. That was pretty good, right? Did I hit the right note? Yours was beautiful. Mine was mumbly bullshit. Yeah, look, y'all, we worked on that note, that last note for a hot minute before we pushed record, okay? Because I was having trouble getting that one. Okay, well, let's talk feline urethral obstruction. Now, if you would like an in-depth review of this topic, we've got some episodes for you. So our previous episodes, 2.2, titled My Nightmare, and Snack Episode 2.2, titled Right Meow, both review feline lower urinary tract disease and urethral obstruction. So go back and check those out if you want a more in-depth review. The main thing I brought today, though, is relatively new information. Mm-hmm. Since we have published those episodes, there have been a few studies about the use of prazosin or prazosin. I think it's prazosin. I've always heard prazosin. Okay. Um, it is commonly used in the management of feline urethral obstruction cases. And the thought was, you know, that this medication might help reduce the risk of reobstruction in kitty cats. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's two important updates for me to tell you about. In the first study, titled The Effect of Prazosin on Recurrent Feline Urethral Obstruction, so this study was published in the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery in March of 2021. And in this study, they said, okay, we think prazosin is going to reduce the rate of recurrence of urethral obstruction in cats that have been hospitalized for UO. So we're going to kind of track them and see if we're right. So they looked at 80 kitties, mm-hmm. 65 of those kitties finished the study. Uh, they The others were eliminated for various reasons. Oh, of, yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean that they were like taken out like death. It just means that maybe they didn't like they weren't compliant with their medicine or different things. OK, that sounds on brand. Uh, I mean, they could have been euthanized. But anyway, I, we're not going to get into all that. OK, so 65 finished the study. OK, got dark real quick. Right. Overall of those 65 overall cases, 25 mm-hmm. percent of those kitties did experience recurrent urethral obstruction. Okay, well, that's now, not good. Yeah. If you break it down, though, into the placebo group, so those that did not receive prazosin and the prazosin group, there was 18% recurrence rate overall in the placebo group and a 30% recurrence rate in the prazosin group. Mm-hmm. Now, when you compare those numbers like, you know, eyeballing it, you're like, wow, the prazosin group was higher. Well, not necessarily because of the different numbers of cats like in each group. So statistical analysis showed that these results were not found to be statistically significant as far as like a difference between them. But even that's a significant finding because if we're saying like we're going to use prazosin to reduce the rate of recurrence, but they're recurring with their UO just as often as cats that don't get it statistically, then why are we using it? Mm. Okay. 
So then a subsequent study was published in 2022. This one was called Prazosin Administration Increases the Rate of Recurrent Urethral Obstruction in Cats. Mm. Okay. So this follow-up study did look at a lot more kitties. Okay. So essentially 302 cats received Prazosin and 86 didn't. Here's how they did the study. They recruited vets to participate in the study who either always used prazosin with every single case mm-hmm. or never used it with any case. And they did this essentially so there wouldn't be a bias of like, well, I only use it on the bad cases because that could affect like the you know study outcomes. Because if you're only using it in the quote bad cases and they reobstruct more, then it's hard to say, okay, what's <laughs> causing that? So 302 cats received prazosin and 86 didn't. 24% of the cats treated with prazosin reobstructed within 14 days of discharge, and only 13% reobstructed when they didn't receive prazosin. And in this study, that difference was statistically significant. And so prazosin was found to increase the rate of recurrent urethral obstructions in cats. And because of this information, uh, this people who wrote the study say, Let's discourage prazosin use because we don't have a specific indication for need and it could make these cats worse. Damn it, prazosin. Yep. If you're working with a vet who commonly prescribes prazosin or if you yourself commonly prescribe prazosin, take a look at these studies. We'll put the info in the show notes as always. It might be worth taking a look and considering changing your protocol. Discontinue. Yeah. JJ, are you ready for the second day? Let's do it. Okay. On the second day of Christmas, the ER gave to me two parvo pups and a tabby cat that cannot pee. Yay! Okay, two parvo pups. Uh, balls. If you want to know more about parvo, guess what? We got previous episodes for you. Mm-hmm. And I recently like went back and re-listened to this. Well, here's why. So, you know, I have like a part-time job with the University of Arizona as a clinical mentor. And we were on like Microsoft Teams, you know, the other day and someone was like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I listened to your podcast and like I've told everybody about your podcast and I always get like really nervous when people mention the podcast in a work environment because I'm like, oh my God, are you firing me immediately <laughs> for expressing opinions about stuff? But they seemed really cool about it. But anyway, um, they were like, I started with the first episode and went through and I was like, oh God, because like <laughs> the first episode of any podcast is always kind of shitty, right? Like I unless you're professionally produced, you got a lot of millions of dollars of funding or whatever, like yeah, smartless. The first, huh? The podcast smartless. What's that? It's got Jason Bateman, um, Sean uh, Hayes, and Balls. Um, uh, what's the dude's name? He does like Batman voice and all the Lego movies. And oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. It'll, uh, Will Arnett. Will Arnett. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like you guys are. Yeah, okay. You this, can pay for whatever, and, and those are all professional actors and so comedians. That's, yeah, that's and, yeah. different. Like if you do voice work for a job, and all of your friends are in the entertainment industry, and you've got millions of dollars, you're cheating. It, you're not cheating, but maybe you're cheating a little. It's you're still funny, and I listen to it. No, I mean for sure, but like a grassroots podcast. If you go back and listen to the very first episodes, it's always like, oh, girl, uh-huh. this is real scratchy, you know? <laughs> like, So I actually, I was like, oh, bite the bullet. I need to go back. And to, and the only one that's really bad is our first one. <laughs> like, I'm like, maybe I can talk to Ben about remastering this. Like, we could remaster it and re-release it. 
like it was a Star Wars movie. I mean, it will be our fifth anniversary like next year at some point, right? So like, um, maybe the fifth anniversary we can remaster and re-release the, <laughs> the first episode of the podcast. The greatest hits. Because it's fucking, it's hilarious. Like that podcast, the I was laughing repeatedly, but I was like, girl, the audio is not good. But anyway, it was the pandemic and we were trying really hard and mm-hmm. it was a thing. Anyway. I don't remember what we were talking about. Oh, the reason I brought that up <laughs> is that when I was going back and listening, can. yeah, to old episodes. This is one of the ones I listened to. So, episode one point five, titled "Super Unnecessary," and snack episode one point five, "The Cupcake Conundrum." That's where we <laughs> invented the system of using cupcakes to describe relative cost of veterinary items, so we do not get fined by the FTC on the mm-hmm. podcast. For price fixing. <laughs> so you can take a listen to those. I highly recommend it. They are funny, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I'm biased. Okay. I think that I see an uptick of Parvo around the holidays, maybe because like of puppy Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. People. 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 Mm-hmm. Please. I'm ready. Please do not give an animal as a gift for Christmas. Unless you know. Unless they know. It's wanted yeah it's like planned ahead of time because there's so many that they give them as puppies and then when those puppies grow into that ornery stage the stage that my golden retriever is in right now Uh that stage they're a little hard to love sometimes yeah you love them anyway but sometimes you're like how many times do i have to tell you get the fuck away from the christmas tree (laughs) because i'm a broken record and you know what leave it means so They'll get over that stage, but you got to let them. You can't just be like, oh, I can't deal with this. You're going to the pound because, you know, the pound be full. Yeah, that's true. I feel like um, people are getting puppies for their kids around the holidays. Like, it's just such a busy time. Maybe those vaccine appointments fall through the cracks or something. Or maybe there's a high level of people not understanding. Like, when a breeder says, like, it's up to date on its shots, they sometimes feel like it never needs shots again, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a different statement. <laughs> or you're going to Walmart and you see somebody with a bunch of puppies in the back of their pickup truck. Oh. And it says free. Yeah. So, um, yeah, those puppies probably had no vaccines. Um, big updates. We talked a little bit about in a previous snack episode, canine parvovirus monoclonal antibody for Milanco. That, I think, is like the big Parvo news of the year right there. Mm -hmm. According to the research published by Alonco, there's faster resolution of symptoms and a decreased hospitalization length. It can be used in puppies as young as six weeks of age, and it's a single-dose IV, which makes it, um, you know, really helpful. Uh, You know, it's not like you're having to try to give some sort of oral medication to a Parvo dog. And because it's a single-shot IV, I think there are potential uh, applications even for outpatient treatment, which would be really big. Uh, if, you know, Alonco, if you're listening to this, I think you need to fund a study, <laughs> on, seriously, on true outpatient treatment of Parvo. If you were able to show that this really helped with outpatient treatment, I think that would be a game changer. Because mm-hmm. the only study I'm aware of on outpatient treatment is the one that we go over in those earlier episodes. 
where it's like, um, oh, we had like a over 50% survival rate, except we hospitalized them for 24 hours ahead of time. And I'm like, that is cheating, okay? <laughs> like, that is not the same thing as outpatient care. No. When the clients that come to me in the ER need outpatient care, they're talking about like, I have 20 cupcakes to my name. That is all I've got. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? There is no situation in which that would allow hospitalization, okay? <laughs> Anyway, off the soapbox on that, Elanco, if you want to, you know, you need to fund that study is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. We got springtime coming up in the oh, southeast. Jesus. There's going to be no shortage of parvo animals. I say you team up with some local practitioners and give it the old college try. Absolutely. Because you have so many puppies to give it a try on. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously. I did pull one study. Okay. This is from March of 2021. So it's new since our uh, original episodes were published. And it is called Prognostic Indicators at Presentation for Canine Parvoviral Enteritis, 322 Cases. And it was published in March of 2021. Mm-hmm. This is a study out of Canada from Western College of Veterinary Medicine. And this is a university teaching hospital. So all of the patients that were involved in the study were treated at a teaching hospital. So I think anytime we're looking at that, we need to kind of remember, like, teaching hospitals generally have a high level of staffing, high level of care, probably different than hospitalization for Parvo at a rural hospital who's got five total employees. Okay. Mm -hmm. So just keep it in mind. But the overall survival rate, looking at those cases that uh, occurred from 2001 to 2018, so almost like a 20-year period there, uh, 91% survived overall. Sweet. Median hospitalization time was 79 hours. That's important information. And then negative prognostic indicators. This means, you know, puppies that didn't do well tended to have these things. They included anemia hypoglycemia and increased serum magnesium at the time of presentation. Hmm. Okay. Now, translating to general practice, we've talked before about how magnesium is not really a common point of care test. Like um, it's not on an EPOC. It's not on other point of care tests. It's not on common in-house lab work. You have to kind of send out for this. Okay. So I don't know how applicable that is to like a general practice environment where we're talking about getting that information back at least 24 hours, if not longer, later. Mm -hmm. But you can assess for anemia and blood sugar right away. Uh, So those are two important things. So if you've got the, you know, really anemic and hypoglycemic puppy, letting owners know that the prognosis is not as good, you know, it's probably an important thing to keep in mind. And the only other thing about this study that I thought was funny was, you know, it's 322 cases, but that was over like a, what is that, 18-year period? They only had 322 cases of parvo in 18 years at this hospital. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> you know, is it because it's cold up there? Maybe. Like, I feel like in Alabama, if you did this at a general practice in Alabama. You could have that in a month. No. Well, well, if that one that I did my preceptorship at in Georgia, that probably is true. Yeah. There was a whole parvo ward at that hospital, mm-hmm. and we had to, no fewer than 10 patients at all times constantly in there. So at that hospital, yeah. But <laughs> the general practices I've worked at in Huntsville, yeah. if you took, like, if you did all the general practices in Huntsville together, I think in a parvo season, 322 would be easy. But they, just 322 in, 17 years? What the fuck? (laughs) Go Canada. Well, but so it is a teaching hospital. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to be able to 
provide a certain financial investment as an owner to get to even to that level. So it could be that this is, you know, representative of the loan over people who seek care from a teaching hospital for Parvo. What's the math on that on cases per year? Well, I don't know, JJ. Let me pull up my calculator real quick because I can't do that in my head. That's 17.8 cases a year. Hmm. Interesting. All right. (laughs) (laughs) We're ready for the next. We're ready for the next gift. Mm -hmm. On the third day of Christmas, the ER gave to me three Three coughing coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat cat that cannot pee. I hit the wrong note at that time. I did too. Okay. (laughs) I ran out of air. (laughs) Okay. So, three coughing dogs. Mm. You probably know what I'm going to talk about. I I bet you there's going to be probably more than three. It's going to be. It's been in the news. You guys have probably seen it in the news. Why is it that it's been in the news now? I don't know. But it's just been going on for years. Well. Especially in the Southeast. Is it just because Southeast don't matter? No. It's probably because the Southeast didn't formally report it. That is also on brand. Because look, when I started seeing these reports, I was like, oh, they're describing an illness I've seen for at least one and a half years at the ER. At least that long. I know. Because remember, whenever it was, I told you, Uh like you were asking me about like boarding and stuff. And I was like, pro tip, do not board your dog, get a pet sitter. Like you do not want this, whatever the hell's going around. Mm -hmm. Because we kept seeing these dogs. I mean, I can say truthfully, at least a year, probably a year and a half and maybe even two years, I would have these cases come to the ER where they had seemed like a normal kennel cough type situation were on appropriate meds and they'd be there for fucking terrible pneumonia. And sometimes they would just fucking die like Mm -hmm. acutely. And you'd be like, what the hell is going on? Not every case, not Mm -hmm. every one of them, but way more than normal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And me and other people at the ER especially have been talking about it like, oh, we got this respiratory disease. And then Several clinics in the Huntsville area at different times in the past couple years have had to close their boarding kennel down for respiratory outbreaks mm-hmm. and stuff. So I I think it's so funny that you mentioned that right off the bat because I was going to kind of say, ooh, I think I might have a hot take on this, which is that it's been around a lot longer than right now. But I think, I mean, like, what did I do? I didn't report any of those. Should I have? Maybe I should have. I mean, Maybe I should have been like, hey, I am I feel like I'm seeing this. I've known of, of a couple of clinics that have, like, the, the other thing that was frustrating is that they'll run, like, PCRs on stuff and everything came back negative. negative yeah. And they're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And there's, you know, I have a, a friend that had a dog that got it, mm-hmm. um, never got pneumonia, but had coughing, snots. For months, mm-hmm. like months and months and months, had multiple rounds of antibiotics and finally kicked it. I think it was like four or five months total. Wow. Long time. Because of all of the national attention and stuff, I have kind of been like, oh, you know what? I should have done something more than just say to my colleagues, like, y'all been saying this? And then be like, yeah, I should have, like, tried to instigate more stuff sooner, right, as a vet. I think that's just a maybe a lesson to take home for for me and maybe for others is like, you know, did I participate in reporting weird crap to my state vet? No, I didn't. Probably should have. It's kind of weird, uptick in pneumonia cases, right? And then I think, like, at the places where I work, is that type of thing tracked? I don't know that it is. So 
I doubt it. Um, you know, maybe that might be something to look at then. Is like if you're having, especially maybe if you have a, a significant boarding or daycare business that you run, maybe we need to be looking at what percentage of our dogs are getting respiratory illnesses and things. And if we're seeing major jumps, report it. Yeah. So anyway, I brought some information to the podcast about it because there's maybe now getting to be like some hysteria surrounding it. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So, uh, the information I'm about to share comes from the Oregon Department of Agriculture, and it was published in an AVMA news release by R. Scott Nolan, and it was last updated on December 7th. So, when we're recording this, that was just a few days ago. The Oregon Department of Agriculture has received more than 200 case reports from veterinarians since the middle of August of this year, so August 2023. The Oregon Department of Agriculture has been investigating the pathology of canine infectious respiratory disease complex and says the illness presents the following clinical syndromes. First, mild to moderate tracheobronchitis, so inflammation of the trachea and the bronchioles in the lungs, with a prolonged duration, like six to eight weeks or even longer, and it is minimally or not at all responsive to antibiotics chronic pneumonia that is minimally or not responsive to antibiotics, and acute pneumonia that rapidly becomes severe and often leads to poor outcomes in as little as 24 to 36 hours. This last bullet point, the acute pneumonia one, that's what I have been noticing at the ER happening way more often than I'd ever seen before. Yeah. So this next bit of info is is about claims for pet insurance, okay? So when we look at Uh, August to October 2023, and compare them to those same months in 2022 at this one insurance company, and I forget which one this one is. It could have been Trupanion, but don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. We'll clip that part out if that's not correct. Quebec, Canada showed a 70.73% increase. Oregon in the U.S. showed a 61.86% increase. Ontario, Canada showed a 25.17% increase. The state of Nevada, 43.05% increase, Colorado, 36.46% increase, and California, 8.71% increase. Additionally, the Colorado State University Veterinary School saw an uptick of 50% in dogs developing pneumonia in 2023 compared to August through November of last year. This is according to Dr. Michael Lappin who spoke at a panel discussion about the disease uh, this past Thursday. Hmm. And I will post the article that I got that information from, which was a USA Today article from December 2nd, 2023, uh, and, and also the information from the AVMA on our show notes, like always, and on social media. If it fits in the comment section. If not, if you if you guys ever see social media post and you're like, where the heck are the sources? Just go to the episode because sometimes social media won't let me post that many characters at Mm. one time. Yeah. Naughty. Yeah. On the fourth day of Christmas, the ER gave to me four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. Fantastic. Okay. DKA, JJ. Pauls. Yep. That sucks. Diabetic ketoacidosis. Thumbs down. You know, in going through our episodes, we've not covered canine diabetes. Interesting. So we should earmark that for like next season. But which episode will it be? It's such a surprise. (laughs) 
Um, we have covered diabetes in cats. That was episode 1.3, the Nifflers of Disease. It's an amazing name. Okay. Nifflers is trademarked also. Okay. We do not claim the rights to that word. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I have brought for you information from a study about the use of flash glucose monitoring systems in dogs with diabetic ketoacidosis. This was published in Domestic Animal Endocrinology in 2021. So it has, uh, you know, been published since we recorded our earlier cat diabetes episode. Now, one drawback is that it only looked at seven dogs. That's a pretty low sample size. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is looking at like how useful is it to install a flash glucose monitoring system. Specifically, they looked at the Freestyle Libre Mm -hmm. on dogs with DKA. So in this study, the Freestyle Libre device was maintained for five days after the initial DKA diagnosis was confirmed, and blood sugars were double-checked with a handheld glucometer and also via the hexokinase method, which I tried to look up, and I think what I got from that was like hexokinase is a common like reference laboratory test, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything specific. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, no, that's incorrect. Obviously, the hexokinase method is blah, blah, blah. Please email me about it and we'll correct that. But to the best of my ability to determine, the hexokinase method would be like, I sent it to a reference lab to double check. When you are evaluating the accuracy of blood sugar measurements, there are some specific guidelines that one should meet. In particular, this study looked at whether these flash glucose monitoring systems meet something called the ISO 15197-2013 standards. I did look these up, okay? I think for our purposes today, the main thing you need to know is that this would be a way of assessing the viability of results and like a bar that you would need to rise to to be able to fully rely on that device, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of... Um, used to say, like, is this device appropriate to give to lay people to help manage diabetics and diabetic blood sugar readings? Okay. So in this study, the flash glucose monitoring systems did not meet those standards, but the researchers still concluded that there are benefits to using the flash glucose monitoring systems. Okay. So when looking at the blood sugars gotten in all three methods, there was a mean difference of about 25% between the readings, okay? Now, some of them were much closer than that, and some of them were super incorrect, like (laughs) 90% incorrect, okay? Like a 90% variance in the data, okay? Mm -hmm. Overall, though, the vast majority of the checks on the flash glucose monitoring system were associated with the estimates, Mm -hmm. okay? So, You have to remember that when we're using these flash glucose monitoring systems, they are not measuring the blood sugar. They're measuring an estimate of the blood sugar based on testing your interstitial fluid, which is different than drawing blood from a vein and feeding it into like a reference lab machine. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's just different. One other important thing to know is that the flash glucose monitoring system was much less accurate in estimating the blood sugar of patients who were hypoglycemic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, in my personal experience of personally wearing a Freestyle Libre myself as a human person, I find that it tends to underestimate my blood sugar by about 20 points. And if it gets sweaty 
or I lay on it weird when I'm sleeping or any other weird bullshit happens, then it'll be like, alert, your blood sugar's low. You're super dying right now. And I'll check my blood sugar with my handheld glucometer. And it's like, your blood sugar is 115. And I'm like, bitch, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like, no, it's fine. So just the other day, I saw a patient who came in with owners who were super freaked out because the Freestyle Libre on their patient was reading like super low, super low, super low. And I spot checked the blood sugar and it was 555 or whatever. Mm. It was like well over 500. And I was like, so we're not hypoglycemic, (laughs) like I promise. And so I had to tell them like, you know, this is not a foolproof situation. And in that case, you know, they just, they were not, they really wanted to measure the pet's blood sugar at home, but really didn't want to have to stick them all the time. So Mm -hmm. what I said was like, well, this doesn't mean we have to throw the Freestyle Libre out. Let's use it. But if you're getting bizarre numbers, let's get a handheld glucometer for dogs and have you check it then. So that's still minimizing the number of sticks when you're only doing a stick if it's showing really weird crap. I think that's reasonable. And they were happy with that. So that sounds Um, good. I think I like I'm super for the use of these devices, but I think we do not need to take them at face value. So, for example, I would never just go off of results from a Freestyle Libre to make sweeping changes to a pet's insulin regimen or to make life uh, saving or life altering decisions in the moment. Like I'm not going to stuff a bunch of syrup into the mouth of a dog who reads 50 on their freestyle Libre. I'm going to check their blood sugar first. Okay. Mm -hmm. Unless that dog is looking at me seizing. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give it dextrose until I (laughs) for sure know that the blood sugar is correct. Okay. Yes. Um, And I definitely wouldn't like, I know some people who use these for like blood sugar curves and stuff like that. But if I was going to do that, I would make sure that I collected the most data over the most days possible and correlated that with the clinical signs. I would never just treat the numbers because, again, I've seen in my own personal self as a human person who knows how I feel and can take care of my device super well and everything that it just doesn't measure accurately all the time. Mm -hmm. So, all right, Judgy, we're we're on to the fifth day of Christmas. Oh, damn. You ready? Yes. On the fifth day of Christmas, the ER gave to me five pooped out wrappers, four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. Pee. Yeah. Pooped out wrappers. So, believe it or not, we've never done a foreign body episode. We have talked about foreign bodies as differentials in a lot of cases. So, my question for you is. What is the most memorable foreign body case you have ever seen? Hmm. Well, one of the most memorable, memorable, memorable is mainly just because it was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And it was removed with the use of a scope, which was nice. Cool. Yeah. Dog had eaten a pair of Spanx. <laughs> and Doc nice. went in there with a scope, yeah. snatched them and pulled them out. And I've got a picture of him with his gown. Holding the panties going. (laughs) (laughs) So that one was funny. But uh, there was also a dog that had eaten Gorilla Glue. Oh, no. Yeah. I've heard about that. It had swelled up pretty big. And they they removed it. And everything okay. Went okay, surprisingly. But the the x-ray was very interesting looking. I bet it was. It was like a big old cantaloupe in there. Yeah. So um, if you're not familiar with this, my understanding, and this is just off the top of my head, 
something about the chemistry of the stomach, the acidic environment and the amount of liquid makes the Gorilla Glue, even if it's a small amount, like expand tremendously. And so um, it expands into this huge fucking ball. So like if you ever see a dog that is eating Gorilla Glue, don't just send it home like, mm-hmm. and be like, oh, we'll see if it gets right. Like it's always a problem. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because I want to say they had done, they didn't know for sure what had happened, but so they did survey films and they're like, there's definitely something in there. Mm-hmm. And then they figure out what was going on and they did films about, it was maybe an hour or so later because mm-hmm. there was going back and forth. We need to do surgery. Here's the treatment plan. Can we do this? Blah, blah, blah. Plus trying to get a hold of owners that are at work. And anyway, it came out. That's what the dog had got a hold of because they found the bottle that was kind of chewed on. Mm. And so they decided to take another set of films and it had gotten bigger. Yeah. So they're like, we got to go now. Right. So I don't even remember what breed of dog it was. It's been a long time ago, but it was a big dog. And that's probably why it did well. (laughs) It had had some room. Had some room to grow. Had some room. But yeah, those are my two that I remember the most. I think my most memorable one of all is the cat that ate six feet of Halloween decoration. Mm. It was like, uh, you know, one of those doorway fringes. Like it, it'd be like a beaded curtain, mm-hmm. except it's not a beaded curtain. It's like it's like pom-pom material. Like uh, if you were thinking about like a sports shaker, mm-hmm. that type of material, this, I don't know what it is. It's like a it's stretchy, like a plastic. plasticky thing. Yeah. And it was that that was six feet long to hang in a doorway. And it was black, mm. you know, for Halloween. So you could like part the streamers and walk through whatever. That's a worst nightmare for a cat to yeah. eat. Yeah. And that thing, that string, uh, it was caught under the tongue. So you could see it under the tongue. And I did, I think I did like seven enterotomies in a gastrotomy to finally get that damn thing out because it was hung up so many places, mm-hmm. you know? Man, that cat actually did great, though. It was one of my first abdominal surgeries as a young veterinarian, <laughs> and I was by myself. Fuck that. I did not have a mentor vet there with me. But you know what I had done in junior surgery? Advanced <laughs> abdominal exploratory, baby. So I was like, all right, this is not my first rodeo. It's my yeah, second rodeo, so we're going to be okay. And it, it did okay. Up. Yeah, it did okay. Um, awesome. Yeah, I don't remember the name of that cat, but it was blue and white. Uh, and he was, you know, tubby mm. and like a middle-aged cat where you're like, man, what in the hell? You know, like. <laughs> that looks like some tasty licorice. Why are you going to be eating that? Come on now. <laughs> I've had some weird ones, too. One time I saw a pug with an obstruction and it ended up being, um, you know, <laughs> you know, those square caramels mm-hmm. that come in that cellophane wrapper. I love those. So, the, well, the owner loved them, too. OK. And what they were doing is like they would have a caramel. And then lay it flat, you know, have a caramel, lay it flat. And so they'd had, you know, many caramels, like ten. making caramel sandwiches. What? No, no, I think they were just eating them. You know how mm. it is. OK, I'm not going to throw stones in a glass house over here with my candy. If there was five, I'd be eating all five. So I th- it was like 10 or 12, mm-hmm. OK, where they had like opened the cellophane all the way up. And then they had like crumpled it up into one ball. Mm-hmm. So the ball itself was pretty sizable ball of cellophane okay and the dog had just like well eaten mm. it down but they didn't know right so the dog comes in with these weird symptoms it, i think it had failed conservative therapy we look at x-rays and it was like do uh, that you know <laughs> that's definitely obstruction and so yeah i went in and, and when we took it out it was like man what in the hell is this and it was the ball of cellophane wrappers <laughs> which you would have thought i mean with the amount of dogs i've seen poop out wrappers yeah 
That's a lot. Maybe one unfurled just enough to clog a hole. Mm. It was, yeah, it, it was impressive. Mm-hmm. It that's, was. That's an interesting. It's like the Russian doll wrappers. Oh, <laughs> uh, and then I guess uh, you know the the other one that I'm thinking of is um, well, there's so many. I've done this surgery so many times. One time, a dog ate a basketball from a mini, like not a whole basketball. <laughs> that is okay. like, this was like a. This was one of those games. I think it was right after Christmas because they had gotten it for Christmas. It was like a game with these little mini plastic basketballs about the size of a ping pong ball. Mm -hmm. And you put it in this little thing and pull back the trigger and go pew. And you try to ring the Mm. basket or whatever. And the kid was playing with it. And the dog saw the kid like shoot it at the basket. And the dog went like, and just like, like right in front of the kid. And the kid was like. The dog ate the thing, and the owner, you know, the mom was like, no, it didn't, like, quit lying or whatever. So they brought the dog in, and we took an x-ray, and you could see the perfect, <laughs> little circle. like, circle outline <laughs> on x-ray. So anyway, <laughs> that dog did fine. And then I saw one other one time that um, had eaten, this dog had eaten everything under the damn sun. It was a Boston Terrier, and it had eaten a wire, like a some sort of wire, or maybe like a undone paperclip you know like that type of a metal thing Mm -hmm. and um you can see it on x-ray like oh damn and then i found it on ultrasound actually and it was like "Uh oh is that poking through the stomach (laughs) because there's free fluid around it and so it was like oh great (laughs) fantastic Mm -hmm. so we took that auto surgery because of the metal object you could see and what i was seeing on on ultrasound and then when i got into the stomach the stomach was full of foreign objects it was like so many things it was like tiny plastic toys the owner's hair like from like a cleaning out a hairbrush it was like that metal thing which had perforated the stomach so uh, i had to close the you know perforation and freshen the edges and everything and then plastic toys just i mean uh, one of those little pizza things you know the thing that mm-hmm. prevents the cheese from melting to the top that little thing looks like a table he eat one of them bitches and it was like what the fuck like this dog has eaten every object it has ever encountered mm-hmm. yeah so sure it was a part golden retriever i've had oh, it looked like the boston terrier for sure mm-hmm. but it was just insane you know how Boston Terriers are a little bit unhinged? I think it was just nuts. Exactly. Yes, that was it. So, yeah. I have I have seen some crazy foreign bodies in my day. Okay, JJ. Mm-hmm. What is the sixth one here? Let's see. <laughs> okay. This is one a little close and near and dear to my heart. That's apparently. right. Okay. <laughs> On the sixth day of Christmas, the ER gave to me six, six ears of itching. itching. Five pooped out wrappers, four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. Sweet. Yeah. So, ear and skin disease in the ER, JJ. Mm. You have a personal experience. <laughs> yeah. My we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Uh, the Reader's Digest version. My bitch ass went to the ER for an ear infection. But let me tell you. Like the human ER. Yes. Yeah. I uh, I have experienced some pain in my life. Yeah. I'd rather have my appendix go rogue five times over than deal with the pain of an ear infection. Mm-hmm. It hurts. It hurts like a bitch. Yeah. 
And um, I, uh, I, I hung in there for about 48 plus hours and said, nope, we going. So yeah, I spent a Sunday in the ER and got lots of IV things and it's better. But uh, I don't want to do that again. No, I bet not. No, that that sucked. Well, I think that, like, you know, coming to the the vet ER for an ear infection is, like, kind of a stereotypical thing of where we're like, ah, that dog isn't sick or whatever. But, you know, I'm going to say, you know, we want pets to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. And we care about them and we want them to get the care that they need. Mm -hmm. I think that where it comes in as an issue is... When we have owners freaking out because they've been waiting a few hours and it's like, okay, like I, you are in line according to your triage level, which is one, okay, green. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Your dog is a green triage level. I have five red triage levels I'm dealing with, you know, like, so when we get done with the reds, we're going to come get the yellows and then we're going to get the greens. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it might be a few hours. That is the situation. Mm -hmm. Yep. It is the situation. Um, Be glad that your dog is not a red. Yeah. So I think in from my perspective, having now worked ER quite a bit, I guess I could fully say like I am an ER vet. I used to be like, I don't like that label or whatever. But no, I'm just an <laughs> ER vet now for sure. Um, like uh, as far as my feelings about it go, I'm not like, get the fuck out of here with your ear infection. I'm like, I'm happy to see your dog, but I need you to practice patience and empathy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, understand that I know that you did not have plans to come to the ER on a Saturday. Like you have 11 other different things that you need to be doing, but we both care about your dog. We both want it to get care. You staying calm and you know, remaining empathetic of the multiple emergencies that are being gurneyed past you as you wait is going to be what's going to help get your dog care the fastest. Mm-hmm. Not screaming at the staff. Yeah. That is not going to promote fast care. It might promote staff breaking down in a corner, <laughs> you know. Oh, if you have somebody with you, um, something you could do to pass the time is maybe go and get some food and give it to the staff. And Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> I'm not saying bribe them. I'm well, saying, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, take a chill pill mm-hmm. for just a second. Bring realize. something that you can watch TV on if you can. And maybe that is a good time to reach out for one of those DBT skills that we talked about. The one about comparison where it's like, it does suck that my dog has an ear infection. What would suck worse? Ooh, that one over there uh-huh. that's bleeding out from a splenic tumor right now. Mm-hmm. I can wait. <laughs> or the dog over there that looks like a balloon animal. That's right. Okay, JJ. Mm-hmm. Speaking of bleeding out from a splitting tumor. <laughs> On the seventh day of Christmas, the ER gave to me seven, seven spleens of bleeding, bleeding six, six ears of itching, itching, five pooped out wrappers, four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. <laughs> This episode is ridiculous. Uh, a little bit, but it's hilarious. <laughs> okay, oh, guys. Them damn spleens. Yeah. So, okay. Most of the time, when a spleen is bleeding, it's going to be the hemangiosarcoma. Not all the time. We talked about that before. Mm-hmm. But, girl, you know, a lot of the time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's a high chance. More than 50%. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you want to listen about hemoabdomen some more, I can recommend episode 3.6, Zombie Shark. <laughs> um. 
This is actually a good episode. I've listened to this one recently too. Um, I like this episode. It's it's uh, it comes really unhinged there at the end. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, but you know, it's funny. It's one of the ones that I I went back and listened to. Anytime I say like go back and listen to this other episode, I try to listen to it again just to make sure. I don't need to change or update anything. And I was cracking up during this one. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I thought it was funny. So. Oh, Lord. Uh, it's the whole thing. Anyway. <laughs> so I can strongly recommend that one if I do say so myself. <laughs> Since we've recorded that episode fairly recently, just last year, there's not like a tremendous amount of research changes that I could find. Okay. But I did find a literature review. Okay. This was published in the publication called just simply cancers okay mm -hmm. in 2023 and this study is diagnosis prognosis and treatment of canine hemangiosarcoma a review based on a consensus organized by the brazilian association of veterinary oncology and this took a look back at you know kind of all of the published recent research about hemoabdomen in dogs and about hemangiosarcoma in particular um, in dogs and, you know, just to recap, generally when we are talking about canine hemangiosarcoma, you know, we can say, you know, unfortunately that the prognosis is unfavorable. Okay. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, we have ongoing studies. We talked last year about that, you know, big study that's going on at Auburn to try to like type the cancer genetically and then use that to kind of design treatments and things. So, you know, hopefully future treatments will improve but unfortunately even in this most recent review you know it's still considered to be pretty negative prognostic uh, situation mm -hmm. when we diagnose hemangiosarcoma and of course we're always going to need future study on this topic because it's unfortunately just a common flip in cancer mm -hmm. um, but this article presents a really thorough review and i can recommend it if you would like to look at it sweet I will put the information in the show notes if you would like to take a look at this one. On the eighth day of Christmas, the ER gave to me eight pyometras oozing, seven spleens of bleeding, six ears of itching, five pooped out wrappers, four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. <laughs> We're going to have this shit down by the end of this. Am I hitting the note right on yes, key? All right. You are. I practice so hard. Well, it's funny. You're talking about how low your voice is. I feel like I'm like Lance Bass <laughs> well, over here. Well, you have your... <laughs> <laughs> Lance Bass. <laughs> okay. I don't know where I pulled that from. Not even a boy band fan. Okay, we have talked about Pyometra on the episode before. Mm -hmm. It is episode 2.8, Plot Twist. Mm. So definitely check out that episode if uh, you want to learn more about Pymetra. And that's an interesting case. I remember the one we did. So we're not going to provide any more details. If you haven't heard that one, mm. go listen to it because it really is out of left field. Yeah, my golden retriever's in heat right now. And I'm like, please don't get a Pymetra. Ooh, I have stuff about golden retrievers. I just in saw this. that. Okay. I was like, motherfucker, what okay. is this? <laughs> so the article that I have brought for our 12 days of ER Christmas Canine Pyometra, a short review of current advances, and it was published in Animals in 2023. I've never heard of that, but it was just animals. Weird. Okay. <laughs> okay, some highlights from the article. 
All right. And some of the, I'm not going to lie, some of this gets wild, especially towards the end. So just <laughs> buckle your seatbelts. Okay. All right. So overall, Palmetra impacts about 25% of all unspayed female dogs. I thought that that was crazy. If you'd have had me guess, I would have said 10. Mm-hmm. Like 25% seems crazy high. But all right. So in golden retrievers in particular, uh, there is a possible correlation between pyometria and changes in something called the ABCC4 gene. So even though there's not necessarily like formally recognized genetic inheritance things that cause pets to be predisposed, we do have some breed predispositions. So I think probably ultimately we will find some genetic situations here. So this isn't confirmed. It's based on like one study. Okay, but just... Just know that that has been noted, okay? Additionally, this review uh, says, you know, hey, pyometra is multifactorial. Mm -hmm. So a combination of the presence of a bacterial infection, your hormonal environment at the time, some degree of genetic predisposition, and then maybe pre-existing uterine lesions, okay? So with that... Uh, there are pre there are some studies that show that pre-existing uterine lesions in dogs predisposes to pyometra. And then there was a single study more recently that showed that it did not. So I think we're up in the air on that one. Okay. But at least in some studies, yes, that has been shown. 90% of bacterial species isolated from these uteri are E. coli species. Traditionally, this is thought to be from ascending infection because the anus is stupidly positioned directly Mm -hmm. above the vulva, okay? Mm -hmm. And probably that's true for the majority of cases, okay? Now, specifically, E. coli with the phylogroup B2 and those with type P. fiembrae. Fiembrae are the little fingers. I remember. La, 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 la. You know, that where you dance around that could help with like movement and attaching to things. Okay. Those are in particular isolated more often from pyometra uteruses. Okay. So because there's this specific type, the specific subgroup or the specific phylogroup of E. coli, this article is saying like, Mm, we need to look more at like altering the gut microbiome, okay? Because if truly this is ascending infection that causes this, we could potentially alter the GI flora of the dog away from this E. coli with the subgroup B with the fiembrae special type and uh, towards other types of things and then reduce the risk of pyometra. Like, We don't have studies that prove that or that show that or support that, but it's a theoretical possibility given the info we know now, okay? So that is a potential avenue for future research into diet and things like that. I kind of wonder, too, more and more owners that have female dogs that are are intact, Mm -hmm. you know, me included, use the, you know, the little diaper period panties things. Yeah. And... I'm I'm just kind of curious if that affects infection. Like, I don't would know. it help? Would it hurt? Does it matter? Well, I mean, so if we're saying the vast majority of cases we think are from ascending infection, then it would be really important to reduce the contact of fecal material with the vulva. And so if we're in like a little, you know, diaper situation where there's fecal material into the diaper and that's left in place, that's bad. But if we're 
able to avoid that, then it might not be a higher risk. Yeah. And so if the fabric were, I'm not 100% familiar with your individual setup, but you would think if the fabric covers both the booty hole and the vulva, that there could be transfer there. It does. So is there a situation where one could be designed that only covers the vulva? Okay, I don't know. But you would have to have a study that looked at that, I think, to know for sure. Okay. But let me tell you this next thing. (laughs) Okay. Because this next thing is going to be evidence that we need to keep the vulva covered if pyometra is active in one dog. Okay. Because guess what? Even though the vast majority of cases are thought to be like infection from your own GI tract up into the uterus. Okay. There is a single case report of suspected transmission of pyometra between two dogs. Yeah. Okay. This, well, let me tell you, this was published in 2022 in the journal Microorganisms. Again, I will put this in the show notes. Okay. In this case report, two five year old dogs in the same household, they were chows. They developed pyometra around the same time as one another. Both of them were treated appropriately spayed, okay? Isolation of E. coli organisms from both uterus showed the exact same organism, like genetically, the same organism exactly, Hmm. okay? They then isolated organisms from the rectum. One of the two dogs had the exact same organism that was isolated from both uteruses in its GI tract. The other one, did not have that organism isolated from its GI tract. So it means that that organism didn't come from its GI tract. So because we've got two uteruses with the same bad bacteria and only one dog butthole with the bad bacteria, that the one dog must have contaminated the other dog somehow. Interesting. So it's a case report, okay? Case reports are, if we think about like our like hierarchy of evidence, case reports are at the lowest range, right? Case reports are just that, a report of a case. Lots of speculation in there. Um, If we think about like the research papers that are of the highest scientific value, that'd be like a literature review spanning multiple years, okay? Controlled studies, things like that. So case reports are all the way down here at the bottom, But still, it's been reported, okay? So we need further investigation into this. But when I read that, my jaw just about dropped off of my face and ran around for a while because I was like, (laughs) what the fuck? That is so beyond anything that I had ever thought was potentially even remotely possible. Wow. Okay, JJ, we're coming in on number nine. Okay. On the ninth day of Christmas, the ER gave to me. Nine, Nine clients, clients complaining, complaining, eight, eight pyometras oozing, seven spleens of bleeding, six ears a itching, five pooped out wrappers, four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. Fantastic. Okay, clients complaining. So, <laughs> if you want. Uh, to hear some previous episodes that we've done on this topic, I can highly recommend several <laughs> that feature therapist Dana Hampson, who mm-hmm. we've had on the podcast 100 million times. But she's awesome. That's right. Okay. Specifically, the ones I can recommend are episode 1.4, Anxiety Castle, 1.15, We Are Wizards, and 4.6, The Litmus Test. That was just earlier this year. Yeah. So. 
Uh, in general, I don't really know what to do about clients complaining other than breathe deeply. Uh, we just had a whole episode uh, last week, actually, about, you know, how to cope with difficult things, how to not make situations worse. I think that that's also an applicable episode for this topic, for sure. Can't we pour cold water on them? Mm, nope, we cannot. As we reviewed last time, we always want to make sure that that is a consenting experience. <laughs> You can pour cold water on yourself if you believe that that's helpful. Okay. You might keep me out of jail. <laughs> and then I would strongly recommend the book Not Nice by Aziz Gazipura. Mm -hmm. um, Dana has mentioned this on the podcast before, and I'll just, you know, reiterate. I think it's a pretty good book. And if you're working in a helping profession, you probably should read it. It's really important about boundaries. And unfortunately, we cannot make clients read self-help books. But we can put them in the lobby. We can put them in the lobby. <laughs> that's actually not a bad idea, JJ. I mean, that's still consenting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. You heard it here, folks. JJ strongly recommends self-help literature accessible in the lobby. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll read it while they're waiting and just, like be a really good experience for everybody. Yes. All right, JJ. Number 10, the 10th gift. On the 10th day of Christmas, the ER gave to me. Ten, Ten pumps of beeping, nine clients complaining, eight pyometras oozing, seven spleens of bleeding, six ears of itching, five pooped out wrappers, four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. Nice vibrato at the end there. Yeah. Oh, I'm starting to become a professional singer. <laughs> You guys heard it here first. I'm going to be a professional frog. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Ten pumps of beeping. Mm, don't miss that. So I just wanted to open up the floor to talk about people who have sensory issues and working in a vet hospital, especially in the ER where there's like 20,000 pumps. And I don't know what to say other than just to like commiserate with you and say like the sound of multiple pumps beeping on and on and on is stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just a lot of things that I could tune out, and I can still tune out, even though I've been out of the general vet practice world for a little while. Mm -hmm. But the pumps beeping, mm -hmm. or if the monitor tone changed into one of the areas it's not supposed to be in, or any type of alarm or anything like that, mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm on it. I'm Because like, part of it, I think, is because you're trained that, that if it needs your attention anyway. Mm -hmm. But definitely, like, if I hear a beeping that remotely sounds like a pump, I'm like, what is it? Where is it? I've got to go fix it. <laughs> and, yeah, definitely, uh, I'm trained. My thing about the pumps is, like, sometimes you look at it and you've tried everything and that damn thing is still beeping and you're like, there is no occlusion. Pressure is not high. Mm -hmm. You know, like, <laughs> yep. stop being a bitch. And just you want to go job. office space on it? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So um, as far as like people with sensory issues, I, I'm in that boat. OK, bright lights are very exhausting to me. Lots of loud noises are very exhausting. You know, you kind of have to build in your own accommodations and coping strategies or I mean, ask for them, certainly. But sometimes you just got to take it into your own hands a little bit. And so what I do is um, I give myself permission to go into the doctor's office and close the door. There's a giant window. I can see everything that's happening, but it 
really decreases the noise. Um, or especially if I need to write notes or I'm on the phone, I will not be able to formulate words in my brain to say to the client if I hear a pump beeping in the background. So, uh, and then afterwards, I, if I know that I'm going to be in an environment for, you know, 10 hours where there's high energy, there's bright lights, tons of noises, lots of rushing around, bad smells even, then I just know that I need to build in some self-care for myself. So I need to go home. I need to shower, change into my jam jams, you know, and just do my cozy, cozy mm -hmm. stuff and like purposely schedule myself for a really easy day the next day mm -hmm. so that I can get back to normal. Yeah. One of the things that it's kind of like a, I guess, a cascading type thing, because it's like one or two or three, th one, two or three things I'm OK with. But usually the trigger for me to where I'm like all the dominoes are falling and I can't stand anything anymore is if I get super hot. Get really if I hot. am like, yeah, temperature wise, it's super hot. I'm, I'm, I'm hugging a dog whose normal temperature is 101 and it's fuzzy and I'm running around like a crazy person. And it's already, you know, because somebody may be trying to save a penny by keeping the AC as high as possible, <laughs> then then I get crabby and then my clothes are touching me and like I can hear the phone ringing from I can hear everything. It's like I become hyper aware yeah. of everything in the room and I'm just like, I need quiet. So those are the times that I usually would go and stick my head in the freezer or. You know, I referred that as my office. Mm -hmm. I would just go to the <laughs> the refrigerator freezer, open up the top of the freezer and put my head in there and breathe. <laughs> and I'm like, I dare someone to say something to me. Well, you bring up a good point about the clothes, like your clothes touching you. Mm -hmm. I um, I found that I, I, I just don't have the patience to wear itchy, uncomfortable clothes anymore. I did it for years. I'm not going to do it ever again. Just I've decided. Every single piece of clothing that I put on it has to be soft. If it's scratchy, I'm throwing it away. Like, I'm not dealing with it anymore. Mm -hmm. Because I found that once I started dressing that way in, like, light fabrics that are soft that I can layer or unlayer so that my temperature stays regulated and nothing is very heavy or itchy or overly warm or overly restricted. Like, everything needs to be stretchy and everything like that. Um once I started dressing that way, I be it became much easier for me to stay calm. Mm -hmm. And so now if I put on a shirt that's maybe getting worn out and it's getting scratched, I'm like, fuck you. And I like take it <laughs> off. I'm like, bye. Like, Marie Kondo, you bring me no more joy. That's bye. exactly right. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like I'm not doing it anymore. It just takes my anxiety down two or three points on its own to not just be constantly poked by a scratchy tag or something like that. Like, I just feel comfortable mm -hmm. and I can just deal with my life. Uh, I mean, ooh, JJ's shirt is soft, too. Mm -hmm. OK, uh, I'm, I'm very similar. <laughs> I don't I don't like wearing uncomfortable things because then it just that already takes me up to a level of. Yeah. So I'm super particular about my scrubs. To the point that, like, I know people like to mandate get these. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. Mm -mm. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'll buy my own, but I'm not going to be matchy-matchy. I'll get whatever color, but I'm not going to be matchy-matchy. I'm sorry. Because I cannot, like, I have a weird body type. I have large shoulders and back muscles and things like that. And they, I have giant biceps. Like, they don't 
women's scrub tops do not fit me correctly. Um, plus, they're too short, like mm-hmm. lengthwise in the legs, you know, on the pants. So I get men's scrubs and I get the super soft fabrics. And I've gone back to wearing joggers now, which was, you know, the the cuffed ankle. Mm-hmm. In like, if you were in the 90s or 2000s, the cuffed ankle was like super like fashion crime or whatever because it was from the 80s right Mm -hmm. but it is so fucking comfortable and your pants don't get chronically gross and wet from dragging on the floor and whatever the fuck and so i'm never going back so now it's like you know what you can pry the joggers out of my cold dead hands okay (laughs) when they retire the cuffed bottom scrub pants Grider is retiring because <laughs> I went for years like trying to be like fashion forward with the scrub. No, it. I think joggers are having a moment right now. It'll cycle back off. I know, mm-hmm. but I'm not cycling back off with it. <laughs> I'm forever a jogger person from now on. High waist that sucker like mm-hmm. up to the boobs on the waist. Yep. Cuffed pants. Ta-da. I can like bend and stretch and kick and do whatever I need to do. Mm-hmm. And they're fine. They work with me and they're not uncomfortable. And so like I can tolerate beeping pumps a lot better. <laughs> If my pants aren't dragging the floor and weird and I'm not having to constantly pull those stupid things up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Set yourself up for success. Positive. Ta-da. Days. <laughs> okay. On the 11th day of Christmas, <laughs> the ER gave to me 11 chihuahuas biting, 10 pumps of beeping, 9 clients complaining, 8 pounditures oozing, 7 spleens of bleeding, 6 ears of itching, 5 pooped out wrappers, 4 DKAs, 3 coughing dogs, 2 parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. (sighs) (laughs) Whose idea was it to do this? Oh, wait, shit, it was mine. Okay. Okay, JJ, mm-hmm. for 11 Chihuahuas Biting, I have brought to you a little bit of an older study because I couldn't find a newer one, okay? Mm-hmm. This is from 2008. It's getting some age on it like mm-hmm. me now, okay? But uh, the study is called Breed Differences in Canine Aggression, and it was published in Applied Animal Behavior Science in 2008. Mm-hmm. This study um, had owners complete something called the CBARC which is the Canine Behavioral Assessment and Research Questionnaire. I love it. Amazing. 30 breeds of dogs were assessed. And guess what? Two breeds were found to have higher than average human-directed aggression. Just Mm. guess. Well, we know chihuahuas. Chihuahuas. (laughs) And a weenie. Dotsons, yeah. So if you breed a chihuahua, you've got double the... That's right, double trouble. Uh, Double the fun. Yeah, I could see that. Chihuahuas were also on the list of dogs that exhibited the uh, most serious aggression, including bites or bites attempts towards humans, along with Jack Russell Terriers and Dotsons. Okay, this was towards both strangers and human owners. Okay, rude. American cattle dogs were the worst as far as towards strangers, and then Cocker Spaniels and Beagles were actually the worst towards owners. Rude. As far as aggression towards unfamiliar dogs, more than 20% of Jack Russell Terriers, Akitas, and Pitbull Terriers were reported as displaying these issues. Okay. And then the least aggressive dog breeds towards both humans and animals included 
the Golden Retriever, mm-hmm. Labrador Retriever, Bernie's Mountain Dog, Brittany Spaniel, Greyhound, and Whippet. Yeah. I mean, I've been bitten by a Golden Retriever before, but... Um, um, I haven't, but I uh, know of a fellow vet student when I was in clinics back in school who got bitten on the face by a Golden Retriever. Mm. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah. I mean, general rule is if they got teeth, they can bite, but there's definitely... I mean, I don't think either one of my dogs have ever even offered, but I could see Fizzy doing it before Indy. Indy just is like, oh my God, a person. I am so excited and I love yes, them. I love them all so much. <laughs> God love her. Okay, JJ, we are to our last gift of the holiday season. Oh, it was a marathon. On the 12th day of Christmas, the ER gave to me. Twelve poodles pooping puddles, eleven chihuahuas biting, ten pumps a beeping, nine clients complaining, eight pymetras oozing, seven spleens a bleeding, six ears a itching, five pooped out wrappers, four DKAs, three coughing dogs, two parvo pups, and a tabby cat that cannot pee. How did we do that? We making it. Okay. <laughs> All right, for 12 Poodles Pooping Puddles, Mm. I have an article about metronidas all use for you. Diarrhea, cha-cha-cha. Yeah, I mean, people, are I think, are going to be pressed about this. What, metronidas all no longer effective? Yeah, so, okay. So I am reviewing information contained in a VIN News article from November 9th of this year by... Ross Kelly, almost an R. Kelly. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Sorry, Ross Kelly. <laughs> that would we'll be a say urine. the first name. That would be a urine episode. <laughs> yeah, cut that. Out. <laughs> that was low hanging oh fruit. Okay, the article. <laughs> the article is titled "Doubts Arise Over Treating Dog Diarrhea with Antibiotics." Most studies about diarrhea and the metronidazole use show that metronidazole does not help with diarrhea. So like out of eight recent studies, only two found that fecal consistency improved with metronidazole use. And one of those two studies had no placebo group and the other was only 14 dogs. So that's not robust evidence for the use of metronidazole. And one of those eight studies show that dogs treated with metronidazole actually took longer to recover. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, this research is this research is kind of saying like, well, maybe we don't need to reach for metronidazole first for diarrhea. Yeah. And especially because, you know, it's an antibiotic. And so we used to kind of think like, oh, it's an antibiotic, that's fine, harmless. But now we kind of know like, oh, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not maybe true. So, you know, the article points out like, why do people use this? Well, tradition, okay, it's the common thing to prescribe metronidazole for diarrhea. We've been doing it for a million years. There might be like hesitancy to send clients of diarrhea dogs home like without any medicine. Mm-hmm. So like the clients might get mad and I can see that happening. Yeah. Like just recently, this wasn't a diarrhea thing, but I saw a client whose dog had hematuria 
and we ran a urinalysis. There's definitely hematuria and not pigmenturia, but we're looking like the sediment other than the red blood cells was clean. The pH and urine concentration were not in line with an infection. There were no bacteria noted on sediment. Okay. And I looked at the set of you, you know, for my decks and I also did my own manual like wet mount prep and looked and I saw no bacteria. Okay. So we had no evidence of a UTI. And so I was like, all right, here's the next step. So I would image the bladder and I would get a sterile sample and send it for culture. And they didn't want to do that. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. those are the next steps. Mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to send your dog home with, you know, a little like pain medicine in case they're uncomfortable. But the dog actually was like running around and seemed completely fine. They were just seeing the blood. And I was like, you know, we really need these extra tests. It's not an emergency. Your dog's not in distress. If, you know, you want to follow up with your regular vet and get these tests elsewhere where it might be less expensive, that's very reasonable. And they were so upset that I wasn't sending them home with like an antibiotic. And I was like, well, so the, so one of the owners was like, so you're just going to do nothing then? And I looked at him and I was like, well, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> I guess so. I'm making recommendations, but I can only do what you allow me. And they, kind of looked mad and I was like <laughs> I mean you know I'm like if it's not an infection it doesn't need antibiotics full but if I hadn't done a lot of boundary work and felt more comfortable you know like standing up for myself that owner could have very easily pushed old me mm -hmm. into just doing whatever he wanted you know and so anyway just a thought and then lastly you know they say like well what else are we going to reach for in this article and they're like probiotics, mm -hmm. okay. But guess what? Also has limited evidence for its use. <sighs> probiotics, mm -hmm. but at least we think probiotics aren't harmful. We think, yeah. See, we don't know for sure, but we th we know that antibiotics can be harmful when they're not needed. So, hate to rain on your parade. Yeah, I, I have four to your Florida. metronidazole parade. <laughs> I have four to Florida <laughs> that I I give mine if they're they seem like they have a little bit of soft stool and. It seems to help, but yeah. I don't know, you know, because I don't give it for like seven days at a time. I give it for several days and after it's normal and then stop. And Yeah. But I don't know. Who well, knows? JJ. We did it. We did it. We've come to the end of the 12 days of Christmas ER. Oh. Well, so, um, you know, the 12 days of Christmas was a very ambitious yeah. podcast topic. And it has taken a while to get through it. But, you know, I'm sure some of the things we've recorded will edit for time. But I'm going to leave some of the stuff in and we'll just have a longer Christmas episode. Because um, it's our podcast and we can do whatever we want. Our gift to you. That's right. So either you've made it this far because you're really into it. And maybe you're sheltering away from your family drama at Christmas by listening to the podcast. Or you tuned out at, you know, the third one. That's but. right. Maybe you just have your noise-canceling headphones on and still have the podcast on because you need something to do, mm -hmm. you know, just so that you don't have to hear the racket, you know, or odd, awkward topics from your in-laws. Okay. <laughs> so just mm -hmm. know that if that is your situation, we are with you. <laughs> we hope that you have a fantastic holiday and we'll see you next week. For heartwarming Christmas stories, and JJ and I will present each other with our art pieces, <laughs> uh, where we have each made an art piece representing each other's animals. Mm -hmm. 
And I think originally we had said drawing, but I am uh, firmly in multimedia art for this. That's what I thought I was going to use. And then I'm like, you know what? I have no idea how to use that. So <laughs> I've got crayons and colored pencils. Let's see what's going to happen. Multi, well, not multimedia. Mixed media is what I meant to say. Where it's like anything goes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to dare you to get a tattoo of what No. <laughs> well, okay. If I think about it and I'm still wanting it in six to nine months, then maybe. That's going to be a big tattoo. But I will hang it up in my office. I've already ordered a frame for it. Yes. <laughs> that's right. I will put it in the office so fast to make your head spin. Okay. All right, guys. If you have questions, cases, stories or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Sure do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.